to America now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much uh, for joining. Great to have you with me here in the Freedom Hunt, as always. So it was quite a day, quite a day on uh, Capitol Hill. Uh, We had the testimony, we were all expecting, of course, testimony about, uh, well, General Flynn and the investigation into Trump-Russia collusion, all that stuff. Uh, We heard a bunch of things that I'll go over with you in some at some level. But let me just say first, nothing really all that new. In fact, it, it should be noteworthy to all of you that on a day when we have uh, testimony happening on Capitol Hill uh, that's supposed to shed light on, let's just cut right to it, shall we? Whether or not the president betrayed his country to become the president, that's or would be willing to betray his country after becoming the president. There are people in the press, and I don't mean little outlets here or there or, uh, you know, folks with 100 Twitter followers and, and, a, and a blog post. I mean mainstream, huge platform, major news sources. There are people who work for those organizations who believe the president is a traitor. They don't have the, uh, the courage of their convictions. They don't, they don't have the willingness to say that, but that is, in fact, what they believe. You can tell by the questions they ask and the way they continue to push this story. Still, to this day, based on no evidence and also based on a series of theories that you have to connect with a tremendous suspension of disbelief and go into the realm of the fantastic conspiracy theorist, uh, a, a next-level creative mind would be necessary to come up with uh, the justification, the explanation for why Trump did what they think he did, which would be working with the Russians to, remember, to hack Podesta's emails. They weren't even that bad. They didn't tell us anything we didn't already really know. I mean, it would be one thing if the emails came out and, you know, all of Podesta's getting marched off to prison and Hillary's, you know, under indictment. By the way, she should have been for, but that's a whole separate discussion about the emails. But here we are down on Capitol Hill, and I wanted to make the point before, but I just get so involved in this that I bounce around a bit, that the most interesting revelations don't come from the hearing itself, but are very curiously timed. Oh, isn't it wonderful for the media that there are these sources that pop up and say things like, oh, President Obama warned Trump two days after Trump's victory, warned Trump in the Oval Office about General Flynn. Do we really think that that wasn't known until today? Of course not. It was held back. It was used for maximum impact in this current news cycle. Because no matter what happens today, 
or what happened today uh, with regard to the testimony. I was able to watch most of it and then go over the transcript afterwards. Uh, but it doesn't really matter. The story is still Russia-Trump collusion uh, investigation ongoing. It never stops. Now, this plays well. This is a good business proposition for the Democrat-leaning media outlets out there, from either Democrat-leaning to uh, entirely uh, Democrat-owned and Democrat-run and Democrat audience. Uh, So what you see here is an opportunity to keep Russia at the top of the news cycle, an opportunity to run now for days with analysis of the testimony and remember, they're just asking questions. Here's what I—and this comes after we were told, oh, Flynn, and there was a problem with his clearance. He didn't have the, the clearance that was necessary to have the national security advisor role when he took the job. And the, this is uh, new information, but not interesting information. Don't really care all that much. Um, it, it doesn't change the underlying story here, which mo- most of today on, on Capitol was repetition. But repetition serves the opposition's purpose here. That's that's essential to understand. Just by having Russia in the headlines, just by having a Russia story out there for people to talk about, it means now that you have days and days of coverage. And whether it is true or not, they don't they don't care. It doesn't matter. The audience wants to hear this. Democrats, a lot of them believe that Russia stole the election from Trump. You know this. This isn't new. And there's a part of me that thought, you know what, Buck, maybe we'll just skip this whole thing today or or stick it at the very back of the show with just a little update because there won't be much new information or at least much new information that matters. Uh, Here's what happened. You had Sally Yates, who was acting attorney general. She was the one that said, you know, I'm not going to enforce Trump's executive order on immigration. So she's already known as a partisan and a grandstander. And I believe today was for her largely an audition for the role of attorney general in the next Democrat administration. Um, but that's that's what was the, the backstory today to today, I think. Uh, she said some things uh, that, well, shouldn't be surprising to you at all. Uh, a repetition of what we've heard before about Flynn and vulnerability to the Russians. The underlying conduct that General Flynn had engaged in was problematic in and of itself. Secondly, we told him we felt like the vice president and others were entitled to know that the information that they were conveying to the American people wasn't true. And we wanted to make it really clear right out of the gate that we were not accusing Vice President Pence of knowingly providing false information to the American people. Anything that Vice President Pence would have said would have been based on what General Flynn had told him. And additionally, that we weren't the only ones that knew all of this, that the Russians also knew about what General Flynn had done, and the Russians also knew that General Flynn had misled the Vice President and others. And that created a compromise situation, a situation where the National Security Advisor essentially could be blackmailed by the Russians. So Sally Yates uh, believes that uh, there was the possibility of blackmail um, by the Russians against uh, General Flynn, and so that's why she had to uh, bring this to the attention of the White House and the powers that be. This, to me, seems to be a, a, a little bit extreme, doesn't it? Oh, well, we think that the Russians would know 
that Flynn would have lied. Remember, it's not a lie under oath. It's not a lie that would entail any criminality. They were initially trotting out the Logan Act, you'll recall, a statute that hasn't been prosecuted in 200 years. The Logan Act, which has never been prosecuted in 200 years, that they will talk about. Uh, Hillary Clinton and her top aides can send around classified information to each other all over the place over 100 times. And, well, that's not, you know, come on, man. Like, that's not really a statute thing that we care about, is it? Uh, so, But the Logan Act was getting a lot of attention for a little while for Flynn. They had to go into the legal books and dust something off and come up with a rationalization for how Flynn could be in, in criminal jeopardy here. Um, but Yates was asked, uh, Yates was asked very pointedly, and this is where I think things got interesting today. You had Lindsey Graham, Senator Lindsey Graham, got to the most worthwhile exchange, I thought, of the, at least of all of the hearing that I was able to see. He said, Senator Graham said, without objection, uh, General Clapper on March 5th, 2017, you said the following to a question. Here's the question. Does intelligence exist that can definitively answer the following question? whether there were improper contacts between the Trump campaign and Russian officials. You said we did not include any evidence in our report. And I say that's the NSA, the FBI, the CIA with my office, uh, the director of national intelligence, that had anything that had any reflection of collusion between members of the Trump campaign and the Russians. There was no evidence of that included in our report. Chuck Todd then asked, as I understand it, but does it exist? Or I understand that, but does it exist? You say no, not to my knowledge. Is that still accurate? Clapper, it is. Okay. So Clapper is able to say, unless I'm missing something, I'm just going, I watch this and I'm going through the transcript now. Graham asked Clapper, does intelligence exist that can definitively answer the following question? Uh, were there improper contacts between the Trump campaign and Russian officials? Um, and then Chuck Todd asked that question. And you say no, not to my knowledge, is that still accurate? So Clapper will say, as he does here in the transcript, uh, I, am not, I am not aware of any intelligence about collusion. Okay? And then Graham turns to Yates. Ms. Yates, do you have any evidence? Are you aware of any evidence that would suggest that in the 2016 campaign, anybody in the Trump campaign colluded, colluded with the Russian government intelligence services in improper fashion? Yates and Senator, my answer to that question would require me to reveal classified information. And so I I can't answer that. And Graham says, well, I don't get that because he just said he issued the report and he doesn't know of any referring to Clapper. So what would you know that's not on the report? And then Yates comes back later. She says, if I could try to clarify one answer before as well, because I think, Senator Graham, you may have misunderstood me. You asked me whether I was aware of any evidence of collusion, and I, cl I declined to answer because answering would reveal classified information. I believe that's the same answer that Director Comey gave to this committee when asked this question as well. And he made clear and I made clear that just because I, I say I can't answer it, you should not draw from that an assumption that means that the answer is yes. Well, if you got Clapper... Someone explain this to me, OK, because what this is, is she's saying that the overall assessment, and I, I know something about this because I used to work in this world. The overall assessment or the very basic and straightforward question, did the did the Trump campaign collude? Are you aware of collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians with regard to the election? It's a very straightforward question. Now, the sourcing on that could be classified. It could be unclassified. I, I don't know, right? But you're just asking a question. Are you aware of evidence that exists? 
and you've got the director of national intelligence or former director of national intelligence saying, I'm not aware of any intelligence that exists. Now, his whole job is to coordinate the classified information from within all the different intelligence agencies. So he's really supposed to know what's going on with this stuff. Uh, and he's, but he's, but notice this, he will say no, unless I'm missing something. I'm looking at the transcript here. I saw it today. He says, and he, he said uh, to Chuck Todd, I might even have the, here you go. This is from NBC News uh, back on Sunday, March 5th. Uh, full clapper, no evidence of collusion between Trump and Russia. That's the headline. So the former DNI will say there's no evidence. The former acting attorney general will say, I can't answer that question because it would reveal classified information. But don't think that that means that there must be evidence because I'm not saying that. Well, why can one say no without revealing classified, but the other couldn't say yes or no without revealing classified? I, I need someone to try and explain that one to me. Right. The, the, the answer or the question is really, is the president of the United States and this woman's being asked this by the Senate under oath in front of the whole country? Is the president of the United States or were members of his team even uh, betraying the trust of their country? Do they betray their own people here and work with the Russians against the American electorate? you're going to tell me you can't, you're not going to answer that. You see, here's what I think is happening. And I don't know, which is fortunate because, because I don't know and don't have access to the classified and haven't in years. uh, I can just tell you what I think. Here's what I think that Sally Yates and a lot of Democrats and a lot of people in the media just intend to keep this investigation going for as long as possible. We're never going to get to a definitive conclusion Anyway, because Democrats will always say that there needs to be more investigation, but they want to hold the information back as long as possible because the uncertainty is undermining. The uncertainty undermines the administration. The process here is the punishment. And they can just keep Trump and his administration under investigation for as long as possible to do as much damage as possible. Because if it was really about whether the president betrayed his country and is a traitor, you'd think they'd find a way to get us that information. Keep in mind, all the various intelligence communities or, uh, or agencies, rather, came together from the community to give us an assessment uh, months ago that Russia was trying to hack the election, right? Or trying, which doesn't even mean anything, but you know what I'm saying, that Russia was trying to uh, influence the election. Well, that's a conclusion. They didn't give us all the evidence. They didn't tell us what the sources and methods were. When someone asked the question, did President Trump or his campaign collude with the Russians? Is there any evidence of that? That yes or no question to me, I don't see how you can pretend that that can only that can only be answered based on classified information when you've got the DNI clapper already answering saying no. So which is it? Did, did Clapper, is he, is he revealing source of them? I mean, the whole thing is just, this is a show, everybody. It's a show. It's meant to just feed the Democrats what they want. Trump is evil. He stole the election. Russia is everywhere. It's hiding under your bed. Everything that happened today is, oh, but the one thing we did find out is no leak investigation going on, according to Clapper and Yates, at least. But not that they know of. So they're not looking at that. All right, I've got more. I've got to hit a break. I will be right back. There was another interesting little moment here with the former acting attorney general, Sally Yates, about unmasking. Ooh, Remember, unmasking is, well, it has to do with intelligence collection where they want to know the identity of a person who 
gets caught in an otherwise lawful or, or in lawful intelligence collection, but the identity is not initially included in the report. Um, this is what uh, Yates had to say on that. Did either of you ever request the unmasking of Mr. Trump, his associates, or any member of Congress? Um, yes, in, in uh, one case I did. I can specifically uh, recall, but I, I can't discuss it any further than that. You can't? So if I ask you for details, you said you can't discuss that? Is that what you said? Not, not here. Okay. Did either of you ever review classified documents in which Mr. Trump, his associates, or members of Congress had been unmasked? Oh, yes. You have. Can you give us details here? In this no, I can't. Ms. Yates, have you... Yes, I have, and no, I can't give you details. Okay. Did either of you ever share information about unmasked Trump associates or members of Congress with anyone else? Well, I'm thinking back over six and a half years, I could have discussed it with either my deputy or my general counsel. Okay. Ms. Yates? In course of the Flynn matter, I had discussions with other members of the intel community. There's a, a lot of bureaucraties going on here. Um, if they believed, if either of these public servants, Clapper or Yates, uh, believe that the president uh, did collude with the Russians, wouldn't uh, he or she just have an obligation to say so? Shouldn't we just know about that? Uh, wh why can we never, we can never get an answer. You'll notice this after today's hearing as well. They never provide any evidence, and they don't want to give you a definitive answer. Although I should say Clapper says, well, he doesn't know of any. Now we're being told, well, the director of national intelligence may not know of any collusion between Trump and Russia, but the former acting attorney general won't answer. Oh? And, and we're also suppo not supposed to draw any conclusions from that. Oh, that's that's cute. Uh, so at what point do we get to say, you know what, I just want the president who can do this, and people go, oh, no, no, just let the investigation play out. Why? The investigation will go on forever. This investigation is not going to stop anytime soon. It could go on for years. That's what the Democrats want. It's not about making us safer from Russian attack. There's not a big cybersecurity takeaway here. Yeah, foreign, foreign governments can use hackers or hackers in foreign countries can get into your computer and steal stuff. This is nothing new at all. Not even a little bit new. It's been going on so many times now that it's largely commonplace. It's a day-to-day -day occurrence. Oh, Russia and Trump, what are we going to do? It's so scary. Uh, if either of these individuals who are part of an intelligence community that uh, has vast reach, if either of these people really believe that, or they were part of it, now they're out, um, that Trump betrayed the country, shouldn't they just say so? They don't want to taint the investigation that's ongoing. I just don't believe that anymore. I should say, look, Clapper at least says he doesn't know of any, right? Yates is like, well, I can't answer that. Why can't you answer that? I, I, I don't buy this. Oh, well, if I answer that, that'd be saying that uh, I, I'm disclosing classified information. Well, don't you think the American people should get an answer at some point? How about behind closed closed doors? Will she tell the Senate there? Because that's the next stop. That's what they should do. Then the senators should actually force her to answer the question. But they don't want any answers, you see. They just want the process to continue forever because the process for Trump is the punishment. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty.
where you're the party, and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. Team phones are open, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. I would very much like to hear your thoughts on the hearing today, or what do you think's going on here? All, all of a sudden, media, right in the in the run-up to the Yates testimony, which was pretty boring, uh, but we're seeing this stuff about Flynn that had not been reported before. It wasn't that interesting. Um, but uh, it's almost like there is a there is a concerted media effort to maximize the impact of all Russia Trump stories, meaning to, to, to get as much attention for them and to run with them for as long as possible. Uh, but uh, Flynn has become a, a figure now that the Democrats spend as much time as possible on. They, they love talking about Flynn. And uh, here is what Sean Spicer said about whether Obama, uh, whether Obama told Trump, don't hire General Flynn. Now- President Obama made it known that he wasn't exactly a fan of General Flynn's, uh, which is frankly shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone that given that General Flynn had worked for President Obama, was an outspoken critic of President Obama's shortcomings, specifically as it related to his lack of strategy confronting ISIS and other threats around uh, that, that were facing America. So the, the question that you have to ask yourself really is if President Obama was truly concerned about General Flynn, why didn't he suspend General Flynn's security clearance, which they had just reapproved months earlier? Uh, I mean, I, I don't like the look at Obama, look at the, what the Obama administration did or didn't do with regard to Flynn. Right, the Obama administration certainly didn't fire. I mean, sorry, uh, certainly didn't, they did fire. Certainly didn't hire Flynn to be the new national security advisor, uh, and they fired him from his uh, role uh, leading one of the uh, one of the agencies. So I, I'm not really, I'm not really understanding the White House. Or I should say I, I'm not really agreeing with the White House tactic here of saying, well, they should have, uh, they should have withdrawn his security clearance beforehand well if if obama was just giving a heads up to trump about how he doesn't think flynn was the right guy for the job i can understand why trump would ignore that um do we think that obama was suggesting more than that 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 flynn was compromised by the the russians i mean that the the reported phone call in the washington post wouldn't wouldn't have happened so what do we think about Obama's warning here? Uh, yeah, sure. Obama might have said, "I don't think Flynn's a good choice for you." That that wouldn't change. Uh, that wouldn't change if I were Trump. Wouldn't change my mind. Uh, so, and, and then you also get to the important point here of well, they got rid of Flynn. They fired him. Okay. So, and he he showed. And this is where I find some of my friends and colleagues on the right get a little. They the oh uh, Flynn military career, uh, a great American, a patriot, all that being true, he made some errors. And I don't just mean with this uh, reported phone call with the Russian ambassador, but also with the lack of disclosure about working for Turkey and taking uh, money from RT. I've said this to you before, even at my lowly, lowly level in the media, you know, whatever this was, uh, well, it would have been some years ago now, I guess five, four or five years ago. I wouldn't go on RT. Uh, I, I, it's a Kremlin propaganda channel. And that's not a slur. That's not a, 
that's not an unfair slap at RT. It's true. It, it is funded by the Russian government or has been funded via the Russian government and is a channel a channel of propaganda. So people say, oh, Buck, American media is propaganda. Yeah, but at least it's American. <laughs> at least at least there's some sense that it is rooted here and based in an American perspective, although it should be noted that oftentimes the Democrat perspective uh, tends to run parallel with a lot of foreign governments' perspectives about a whole bunch of stuff that we do here. Um, but I digress. So I'm trying to think of what the real takeaway for everybody is supposed to be about General Flynn other than what we already know. Um, they took the actions necessary to deal with him in this White House. Yeah, I think the president took appropriate action when he did, once he felt as though uh, General Flynn had uh, misled the vice president, and he, uh, he took appropriate and decisive action at the time, and he stands by that today. Yeah, so they, they fired him. They fired him. He's done. And now there's some concerns or some questions as to whether or not there'll be further investigation and possible prosecution of him. Uh, in, unless there's Russia collusion evidence... I, I don't really care all that much about this anymore. You've got McMaster now as national security advisor, a great, a great pick by all accounts, doing a fantastic job. What, what is the purpose at this point of rehashing all the uh, unfortunate first few weeks of the Flynn tenure as national security advisor? Again, it's just all Russia Trump stuff because this plays well on the left. Uh, if the day ever comes that they provide real evidence, and I should note that they will eventually, I think, be forced, the Democrats and the left media will be forced to overstate some piece of evidence that emerges. They'll say that, well, you know, Carter Page or or someone, touched, uh, someone attached to the Trump administration uh, was in contact with somebody who was or the Trump campaign at the time, uh, had a friend in Russian intelligence or something, you know, they'll, they'll try to construe yet another conspiracy theory or, or another phase of the conspiracy theory. That will be flimsy, but at least they'll be able to tell them something at night when they want to go to sleep, that they're not crazy and they're not just running around with nothing. Uh, also, here's a question that I never hear anybody ask. Why would, uh, why would Trump coordinate with, let's say, do this with me. Walk through this with me, and, and I would love to hear somebody who disagrees with this explain where I'm going wrong. And if you think I'm right, of course, you can call and tell me that, too. That's always cool. Okay, so here it goes. We've got Trump. Uh, let's say it's Trump himself, just to make this a juicier, more fun story. Let's just get into this. You've got Trump, and he is uh, in the midst of his campaign, and he sits down with a a, a Russian... Uh, senior Russian intelligence officer, right? I mean, and they're in some uh, some back room of a, I, I don't know, of, of a sketchy, you know, bar in some Eastern European city or something. And they're sitting there, and the Russian guy says, you know, uh, Mr. Trump, Vladimir Putin really wants you to win. And so we're going to be taking action that will uh, help you. Collusion would mean that Trump now. OK, so let's assume that that's all happened. Collusion would mean that Trump then says or responds or somebody on the Trump team. I mean, it's not Trump didn't do this. And even in the most crazy left wing fever swamps of the Internet, I don't think anybody really believes that Trump himself did this. But just so we can be very clear in the example. So Trump sits down with this uh, this Russian 
in in my remember this is not my theory this is just play, I'm I'm wargaming I'm playing out the scenario the worst case scenario that the Trump administration with Trump uh, Russia collusion could face sits down with this Russian Russian says Mr. Trump we're going to try to help you okay Trump then says all right thanks glad Putin wants me to win walks out has he broken any laws has he done anything and you say, okay, well, Buck, but maybe that's that's not collusion. That's just notification. And also, we should note, if the Russian says this to Trump and Trump says, don't you dare do that, do we, do we think that would change this this Russian, this remember, this is fictional, but this r- fictional Russian intelligence officer's mind? Oh, yeah, okay, Trump said, don't, let's not hack, guys. Let's not hack. Let's not do this. No, the Russians have been running information operations for decades, back long before there, we were even talking about the FSB and uh, the various other Russian intelligence services, uh, GRU, SVR. Um, we were talking about the KGB, the Cold War era. There were Russians, then there were the Soviets. They were running intelligence operations then. But so, okay, so now we sit back down. I, I know the Democrats are all, oh, Buck, but you're giving, you know, what, what if, what if? Okay, let's do the what if. So Trump sits there with the Russian, and, and it's even worse. He doesn't just say, okay, thanks. He says what exactly? Yeah, and I'm going to help you? I've got my best guy who's going to work with you. My, my, my best guy is going to work with one of your Intel guys to get into Podesta and the DNC's email accounts. That's just stupid, right? That there's no reason to do that. Think of what collusion would mean. Collusion would mean that Trump had to have a senior member of his camp or, you know, somebody with gravitas and connection, right? It can't be somebody that shook Donald Trump's hand at a rally once a long time ago who happens to have a friend you know, who is connected to Russian intelligence and had some concocted scheme about how they're going to help Trump win, right? Somebody with, with gravitas and pull in the Trump orbit. Why, why would they collude? The Russians don't need Trump's help for this. So what would be the purpose? The whole, this is what I'm trying to get at for all of you. And I haven't heard anyone else making this point or saying this, so I think it's essential to make it here. And I, I hope you will, if you agree with me that this is a... a, a an essential aspect of the argument that we should keep in mind, then please, you should tell others about this. Why would he collude? Even if Trump wanted to use the Russians and was willing to do anything to defeat Hillary, why would he, quote, collude with them? And how could he collude with them? Just being notified of Russian action through an intermediary is not collusion. That, that, unless there is an affirmative step taken by somebody on Trump's behalf, at Trump's behest, to assist in the hacking— there's no collusion. Does anyone really think that happened? That Trump had one of his henchmen meet with one of these Russian guys like, ha, ah, let's come up with this scheme. And keep in mind, they've already said that there was a hacking of both Democrat and Republican systems. I know that only they say, oh, well, the Democrats were the ones that had information released. But OK. But again, it doesn't even make sense. It, it's not feasible. Forget about whether they they still haven't produced any evidence. But even in the absence of evidence of the and I don't mean to overuse the word, but it's important. It's essential collusion of actively working together with the Russians to subvert the U.S. election, to, quote, hack the election. Why would why would the Russians even need Trump to do that? It doesn't. In in fact, all that does is expose there would be, you know, Kremlin proxy to this kind of problems down the line or these kinds of problems, uh, this sort of media treatment. The whole collusion narrative is crazy. It makes 
no sense. If I thought it made sense, I swear to you, I promise, if I believe that the president of the United States or one of his top officials on his behalf was actively working with the Russians to engage in criminal activity to throw the election, I would be furious too. And I would want accountability, legal, criminal accountability. But the story they keep offering, or forget the story, the evidence does not exist, and they never give us any evidence of this, which I've said to you before, but now here we are, once again, the point about collusion, and it doesn't even make sense. And if what happened is what we know to have happened now based on what all the intel community reports that we've seen and everything that's been talked in the press, that the Russians just wanted Trump to win, so they hacked Podesta and they did something, well, that's not Trump's fault, and it's really not that big of a deal in terms of whether it affected the election outcome or not. I know today people saying, oh, we've reached the—this is the most effective Russian— operation, Russian information operation of all time. Well, that's only if you think it swayed the election. And I don't think it swayed the election. And even if it did, guess what? There's no redo mechanism. So what are we even talking about? But what is the real purpose of this? It is not about U.S. national security. It is not about cybersecurity. It is not about accountability for Trump and his top people. This is about undermining, smearing, discrediting Trump and all of his top people and continuing this investigation to get dollars for Democrats going, to get campaign donations going, to return control after a long uh, drought of the Senate to the Democrats and eventually the House and, of course, in four years, the presidency of the Democrats. That's all this is. This is just politics, everyone. It's really not about national security in a bipartisan, honest fashion at this point. It's just about making Trump look bad, keeping this conversation going, because Another question I put. So we've already discussed, right? Collusion, it doesn't make sense. Why would Trump work with the Russians on this? Even if he knew about it, knowing about it doesn't mean anything, and they don't need his help. They don't need his help. So what does that mean? Why would he do that? It's just dumb, even if you thought he was in first. Anyway, you get that point. Um, let me hit a quick break here because we're going to run on the next one. I want to take your calls, though. 844-900-2825. Team, we will be right back. Jim and Georgia on WDAK. What's up, Jim? Hey, what's going on, bud? First time caller here. Thank you, sir. Great to have you. Yeah, it's uh, good listening to you, too. Thank you. Listen, I just wanted to talk about your last comments about that whole, <laughs> and I can only determine as bovine scatology uh, uh, when they talk about the collusion issue. There are three points I'd like to make. One, everything about Hillary Clinton that the Russians allegedly had to say, I mean, we, most of us already knew that, you know, people who were paying attention. Uh, second of all, the Russians would only like this whole business because it makes them look all-powerful in the cyber world, you know, so they can keep their mouth shut and look like they've really done something great because they keep getting the credit for it even if they didn't do it, you know. Do you see my point, though, about how, about how collusion makes no sense? Why would Trump yeah, or any of his exactly. people take an active step to help the Russians? They don't need our help, or not our help. They don't need their help. Exactly, exactly, because I don't think they're that good anyway. But third point is, you know, they would have preferred Hillary as president anyway. Obama didn't do anything about Ukraine, didn't respond to it. Hillary wouldn't have either. You know, Putin just keeps doing what he wants to do. Yeah, I, I always think <laughs> that gets overlooked in this, Jim. Nobody knows what Trump— Trump doesn't know what Trump's foreign policy is really going to be like. It's just based on gut instincts and a, and a straightforward 
a realistic approach to the world, right? But he doesn't have a doctrine, yeah, so it, it, the, the, the Russians can't yeah, foresee. And by the way, Russian political forward. analysis tends to be, for a long, stretching back a long way, tends to be way off and crap. Exactly. Yeah. And and he's more of a, a shoot, shoot from the hip kind of guy. I hear you, man. Yeah, yeah well, I'm, I'm, Jim, I appreciate it. Good points, man. Thank you. Shields high. Uh, Jim in Michigan. Good to have you, sir. Yeah, I, I'm always intrigued by the fact that everybody talks about what the Russians are doing or what the Russians did, but nobody talks about what was revealed in Podesta's emails. Uh, you know, the, um, the fact that they wanted to get rid of Bernie Sanders or the fact that they had, uh, you know, all these uh, nefarious things that they were talking about that is exactly opposite of their talking points. But no, we're not bringing that up. Instead, we're trying to defend ourselves against something that doesn't need to be defended against. I think if we if we shine the light more on what was in Podesta's emails... But Jim, was, what did you think that was so noteworthy in Podesta's emails? I thought they were pretty... You know, pretty pedestrian, pretty whatever. Right? Did, did anyone not know? I mean, the superdelegates were in the tank for Hillary from the beginning, and everyone's like, well, Hillary's going to beat Bernie because of superdelegates. I'm like, so the Democrat establishment, the Democrat Party establishment, is just deciding Hillary wins because Hillary wins. Uh, that was the reality, right? There was a, They have a huge superdelegate system in the, Demo- in the DNC primary. So we all knew the Democrats were. And then, and then we found out about the leak of the questions to Hillary from that CNN, uh, who was, by the way, uh, one of the most revered CNN pundits I ever came across, Donna Brazil. I mean, Donna Brazil at CNN was like political royalty, uh, and she gave Hillary right. the questions, as you know. So it, it, this was all this was all apparent, Jim. You know what I mean? Well, but I think the point is is that if the Democrats would have said one time that the Russians were hacking and then let it go, that would be a Republican tactic. Instead, they just keep hammering on it and hammering on it until they finally get to point out, we all know this information, what you're saying is, is pretty pedestrian, but it's not common knowledge to everybody. And so you have to keep hammering at home. Every time they talk about Russians, you have to talk about what was in the emails. And then it finally is going to start to sink in. All right. Jim, thank you for calling in. Shields, I appreciate it. If you're on hold, please stay with me if you can in the next hour, or uh, you can call in now. We've got some spots open, 844-900-2825. Hour 2 will be upon us shortly. He spreads freedom. Because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back. Welcome back, everyone. We've got Michelle Malkin on the line. She is a syndicated columnist and host of Michelle Malkin Investigates, on CRTV, also author of Culture of Corruption. Michelle, great to have you back. Hey, thanks for having me back, Buck. Uh, Let's talk a bit about, uh, I want to get into the EB-5 fraud story that you've done, Michelle, but first can I just ask you a bit about what happened today in Texas with Governor Abbott and this bill that targets sanctuary cities. What's going on here? Well, I think that uh, Governor Abbott is is, uh, putting the pedal to the metal. And um, this is coming at a time when so many other states are going in the opposite direction. Illinois uh, is poised, you know, with a nominally Republican governor uh, to declare itself officially a sanctuary state. Um, California has operated as a, as a de facto sanctuary state for as, as long as I can remember, and I started my journalism career uh, in Los Angeles in 1992. Uh, and... 
I think that um, when you've got Congress, you know, passing its omnibus bill and refusing to take the steps that, you know, Donald Trump promised he would in defunding these outlaw cities, um, that once again, Texas is leading the way. And they were at the forefront of the states uh, when Greg Abbott was attorney general in challenging Obama's executive fiat amnesties. And, and here we go again. Um, you know, I, I almost moved to, to Texas when I made the decision to flee D.C. We, it, it was between Colorado and Texas, and I'm increasingly regretting the choice that we made. Where do you stand on a wall, by the way? Um, I'm wondering where it is. Okay. <laughs> I'd like to be able to stand on one. Um, look, clearly it's just one piece of the puzzle, but it's a very big, uh, symbolic um, gesture that uh, should have been made a long time ago. And remember, under the um, Bush administration, W.W. W. Bush, um, he had promised to build a wall, too, and it ended up being what I called a fino, a fence in name only. Um, when I wrote Invasion back in 2002, Buck, I made very clear that the wall um, was just, uh, you know, one piece of the systemic immigration enforcement reforms that we needed. And um, and, it, and it hasn't happened, and, and what we're seeing now is that there are a lot of open borders, special interests not only on the left, but many corporate interests on the right as well, um, that are standing in the way, as they have for the last 25 years. One aspect of the law that Governor Abbott in Texas signed today I thought was interesting was holding, it, it would hold officials accountable. Well, here, actually, we can hear from the governor himself. I was proud last night to sign this law. This law effectively bans sanctuary cities in the state of Texas. What it means is, is that no county, no city, no governmental body in the state of Texas can adopt any policy uh, that provides sanctuary. Uh, second, what it means uh, is that uh, law enforcement officials such as sheriffs are going to be required to comply with ICE detainer requests. What it means is they could be subject to jail time. It means they could be subject to being removed from office. It means that their city or county could be subject to fines and penalties of up to $25,000 per day. M Michelle, that's, that's a law that sounds like it's got some teeth when it comes to more or less enforcing the enforcers. Yes, finally. And again, you've got so many of these police chiefs, left-wing police chiefs, uh, in places like Los Angeles that are openly defying the law. Um, I lived in Los Angeles as a sanctuary outlaw city. Uh, I moved up to Seattle. It was the same way. And then I, I lived in Montgomery County, Maryland, which, uh, of course, has been overrun by MS-13 thugs, um, while those uh, liberal bureaucrats pat themselves on the back for their tolerance and, and understanding of, of, of uh, illegal aliens and, and their continued enabling of uh, criminal, illegal alien criminal rackets. So um, there, there's another piece here, of course, um, that uh, Governor Abbott's um, great move does not address, and that is the fact that American citizens do not have standing to sue these outlaw sanctuary cities um, when uh, they or their family members are, are victimized by illegal alien crime. Um, as a result of, of non-enforcement or lax enforcement. And I really think that's the, the missing piece here. Um, I don't know how you fix that. I mean, you certainly can't do it at either the uh, executive branch level or 
um, legislatively or, or through any, you know, through any gubernatorial means. Um, but uh, it, it is a crying shame that, that American citizens do not have standing to sue, but you've got these, you know, <laughs> um, Muslim immigrants from around the world who are bollocksing up uh, Trump's travel ban and restrictions. Oh, yeah, and they can sue. They, they can sue now. Thanks, thanks to some judges out, out in the out west. Uh, right. We're talking to Michelle Malkin, everybody, syndicated columnist, host of Michelle Malkin Investigates, which is on CRTV. You can check it out on CRTV.com. Speaking of which, EB-5 fraud. Tell us about this, Michelle. To give people some background, because I'm sure most folks don't even know what EB-5 is, and that's fine because it's pretty down in the weeds. Yeah, it, it is, but it is something that has plagued our country for the last, oh my goodness, 25, 26 years now. Um, this was a bipartisan program that was created with the support of George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, Teddy Kennedy, um, and old-line progressive Democrats in cahoots with big business special interests. And it was in the news this weekend because there was a New York Times reporter based in China who was kicked out of an EB-5 presentation that was uh, run by Jared Kushner's sister. Jared Kushner, um, his family, of course, big real estate and development moguls. Uh, One of his companies has been heavily involved in the EB-5 program. Essentially, it puts green cards and eventual American citizenship up for sale, Buck, to the highest politically connected foreign bidders. And I think that uh, when they first conceived this program, many congressmen thought, well, this is a way to um, lure foreigners into the United States who wouldn't be on the dole. And so politically, the the optics looked good here because there would be investments, it would be a win-win situation. Uh, The way that they had had initially conceived the program, these EB-5 green card visas um, would cost between $500,000 and a a million dollars of an investment in um, a project that was supposed to be in an economically distressed area. But uh, think of the porculus math, uh, job creation math, or the cylindra fuzzy math. Put that on steroids, and you have the uh, bogus formula for job creation adopted by EB-5. And, and what's happened is it's turned and morphed into this bipartisan racket um, that allows wealthy, mostly Chinese I- investors, to not only come over here and, and buy American citizenship, but then also import their entire families and then never have to prove that their investments are actually creating the jobs that were promised. So they say that they're going to invest $500,000, but then they can bring over their whole family and just stay. Yes, and in fact, uh, the, the, the threshold for investment has been sabotaged and undermined year after year after year. Um, there's very little oversight um, uh, with the program, and um, there are national security uh, concerns involved here, too. The DHS inspector general pointed them out over the last several years. Um, and people will be familiar with other uh, EB-5 scandals. Terry McAuliffe was involved in one, the Green Tech Electric Car Company that, uh, that didn't, essentially didn't exist in, in Virginia. Harry Reid leaned on Obama top DHS official Alejandro Mayorkas to approve one of, of these projects that one of his sons, Rory Reid, was involved in. So you can see that this is a... This is essentially, I mean, Beltway cronyism is written into the DNA of 
the program, and the benefits have been um, very little for, for taxpayers. And in the investigative episode that we did uh, for my show, Michelle Malkin Investigates, on CRTV, we actually sent a crew up to um, Northeast Kingdom in rural Vermont where Pat Leahy and, yes, Bernie Sanders fronted one of these EB-5 projects that literally resulted in a hole in the ground um, outside of Burlington, Vermont, and that's all they have to show for it. Who, who determines, Michelle, that how does an EB, you mentioned this EB-5 project, uh, who gives it the thumbs up and, the, you know, and, and waves people on in, or is, is this just through Immigrations and Customs Enforcement? How does this work? So this is one of the many alphabet uh, soup visa programs that is overseen, or rather not overseen, uh, by the State Department. Uh, and there is a DHS component to it in, in terms of some of the vetting, but uh, when it comes to sort of crunching the numbers about whether uh, there actually is any real job creation, it, it's a black hole. I mean, it, it's another big hole in the ground, and this is something that um, watchdogs have, have called attention to many times over the years. The only enforcement agency that's done anything to stop the fraud and embezzlement um, by many shady real estate moguls who are taking advantage of this, is the Securities and Exchange Commission. And they have cracked down in places like Seattle and Detroit um, and um, recently in, in Vermont over the last year. It's bipartisan, the, as I said, I stressed. I mean, this was uh, a Bush-Kennedy creation. And, um, I mean, among the, the most shameful ones was a EB-5 scandal in South Dakota, where uh, EB-5 visa money was supposed to fund a, a new slaughterhouse project, and, and um, uh, the people involved there also just ended up siphoning off uh, the, the money involved there and taking the money and ran. Michelle Malkin Investigates is on CRTV. Check it out on CRTV.com. You can see her uh, piece on the EB-5 and all the cronyism that it involves. Uh, Michelle, thank you so much for making the time. Great to have you as always. Thanks, Buck. Uh, team, we are going to hit a break here. 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. We'll be right back. Calls are up. Let's take some. We've got uh, Spencer in Ohio on WHLO. Hey, Spencer. Thank you for taking my call, sir. Thank you for calling. I, uh, yes, I had heard... Uh, prior that uh, Obama created the fake dossier and that it was a prop to blame Russia for the hacking. Uh, what do you know about this, and where is this dossier today? And back in 2011, Mr. Obama begged Vlad to help him win re-election uh, to give him more flexibility. What was that flexibility to be used for? More appeasement? Uh, and I do believe uh, that our National Security Act is really what is at stake here? And getting back to this Flynn phone call, if if you can prove intent on the Obama side, uh, this would be a violation of the Tenure in Office Act, 1867, which led to the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. Whoa. Thanks. Okay. Uh, so which which one of those you want me to tackle first, Spencer? Give give, give me one at a time here. What, what what's first on the menu? 
I wanted to just make one other mention of the Paul Spirit New York Times report of February the 11th, uh, where he said sabotage is the name of the game, and that the Obama shadow government will be introducing ways to undermine and sabotage the Trump presidency. Who said? Who wrote this? The Paul Sperry New York Post article. Oh, Paul Sperry in the Post. Okay, yeah, we should have Sperry on. Have him talk about this one. Let's let's reach out to Mr. Sperry. I think he's at uh, one of those institutes out out on the West Coast. I forget which one, but uh, yeah, okay, I'll reach out to him. Yeah. So, Spencer, no questions. More more comments from you on Ohio. Is that fair to say? Well, you know, when you put the uh, pieces of the puzzle together, it shows Espionage Act violations, Sabotage Act violations. And under the Espionage Act from 100 years ago, uh, one of the penalties is, but not limited to, uh, calls for the death penalty. Yeah, th- that's technically true. Um, hasn't really been used that way in a very long time. I think the last people executed for treason were uh, the Rosenbergs, right? Uh, it's been a long time, um, and I don't. Th- I don't know. You're, you're bringing that up. I mean, yes, that is technically true. I don't know what that necessarily. Most Espionage Act cases have to do with just disclosures of classified that, in, in some cases, are are pretty pretty major. In some cases, are much more minor. But they just want to make an example out of somebody, which I think is a terribly unjust way to approach the law. But that's what the DOJ does with this stuff. Usually, the low. Thank you for calling in, Spencer. Uh, the lower level folks uh, get crushed in the machinery of government to set an example for the rest. But if you're more senior, whether it's Hillary Clinton or, yes, even General Petraeus and, and others, uh, get a softer treatment on this stuff. Because, uh, look, this it's, it's easy, it is easy to make, and those of you who have held a high-level clearance and worked for uh, the government for years, uh, it is easy to make some mistakes with regard to these, this information, but that's a question of how serious, how severe, what was the in, what was the intention, what was, you know, that's where all of a sudden you get uh, the leeway for the government to say, well, senior people, we're going to give them a pass. It's like, well, you know, um, it really depends on which uh, or how the Espionage Act is violated. Um, there's There are much more minor, uh, there are much more minor transgressions, and there are very major, tra- interestingly enough, some of the most major ones we know of, for example, uh, with Bradley Manning uh, and the, the Snowden disclosures, uh, you know, th- those were, were enormous in scope um, in terms of the in- amount of documents that were released. Uh, but much lesser punishments are usually given out to people for much lesser offenses. So there, what I'm trying to say is the Espionage Act, uh, Espionage Act is really overbroad, and so it, it can be troubling because it gives the government so much leeway that it can really ignore in the case of Hillary Clinton, when it wants to ignore, and it can destroy when it wants to destroy, uh, depending on who the target is. I don't like laws that are overbroad, and I don't like the uh, unequal application of the law, which we clearly saw with Clinton and those disclosures. Um, I I have yet to meet a person who has held a security clearance who will look me in the eye and say, yeah, if I had sent 100 classified emails over an unclassified server, I would have I'm not saying the person will go to prison for decades. I don't think that's the case. I don't think that, you know, I don't know what was the information, but I think that would be uh, that would be harsher than you would see in a judicial proceeding. Um, but you probably take a, a plea and, a, you know, stripped of clearance and never able to work in national security again. And, you know, that those are the just look at the cases. You don't have to take my word for it. Look at previous cases and what's happened. Uh, look at look at Petraeus. 
right? That was willful stuff that he was doing, but he was told don't you know paid a hundred I think a hundred thousand dollar fine and told don't ever do that again and uh, lost his clearance, uh, and obviously had his reputation quite damaged in the process. Um, but all right, enough on that for now, uh, or at least enough on that for that question. John in Pennsylvania, good to talk to you, sir. Hey, Buck. Hey, don't let me take y'all speakerphone. Oh, why? Thank you. The audience and I appreciate that. Nice to speak to you again. Uh, talk to you since you were on the other station. Uh, yeah, I have a couple comments. One was you just were just discussing part of it uh, about the emails and about how it's always one-sided what they're talking about. You know, a lot of those emails came from the unsecured server. Came from uh, that idiot, her uh, her campaign manager, whoever it was. That was uh, had, I'm not sure who. What Podesta? I guess. Yeah, he was uh, the password was password kind of thing. They yeah, got, yeah, yeah. You're talking about the hacks <laughs> of Podesta's account, right? Yeah, him and her, and but you know the the, the media is just been all the way through this so one sided. And you talk about you know why would Trump do that? Well, Trump, I don't think Trump did do anything. I think I think you know Obama and Putin were not the best of buds. And as far as anybody was concerned, I heard one guy say they would thought Hillary Clinton would have been better, but I think Putin knew enough to know that. Hillary Clinton would knife him in the back the first chance she got, and he hated Obama. I mean, Obama like come up, you know, got a participation prize like the first day he was in the office for like, for for just showing up. And Putin came up the hard way, and for you know somebody like uh, Obama to be talking smack about him the way he did, I don't think that went over very well. So I mean, but all in all, I think it's the best. I mean, the worst thing you could say was maybe it evened things out with all the way the media was overlooking like every possible thing that. And has been for a long time. I mean, IRS targeting, and it's all that's all a non-story as a server. Yeah, you know, you know, you know, it's troubling, John. And thank you for calling it for Pennsylvania. The the more I try to engage uh, uh, offline and online in good faith with uh, Democrats and own the media, and just tr- just try to make a very obvious case. I mean, you guys all realize you're Democrats, right? I mean, you're ninety ninety five percent of you are Democrats. You're pushing Democrat causes. You have Democrat ideology. And what I what I realize, and this isn't a new phenomenon, but it is troubling that it still exists, is that for a Democrat who works in media, uh, taking all Democrat positions on everything isn't partisan. It's just truth. They they see no difference between the two. They are so ideologically uh, brainwashed and, and so dedicated to their own, uh, well, their self-righteousness and their, their virtue that for them, it's not a question of, are you a partisan Democrat in the media? It's, well, of course you take Democrat positions because those are correct. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. We've got Caitlin Collins with us now. She is the Daily Caller's White House reporter. She is there in the mix, in the middle of it, in the Beltway. Caitlin, great to have you back. Hi, Buck. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining. So uh, what what were your takeaways? What was... What were the the press uh, the press corps down in D.C.? What were they thinking after today's uh, hearings about Trump, Russia, Flynn? Oh my! So it's a pretty crazy day because we started out with the press briefing this afternoon before Elliott's testimony, where Sean Spicer report, repeatedly blamed every blamed Mike Flynn's transgressions on the Obama administration because one of their agency heads issued his security clearance. So he said that they couldn't be to blame for what happened. 
So it's really interesting when then Sally Yates comes on and testifies, and she says that the reason she contacted the White House about this in the first place was because they were worried the Russians could blackmail Michael Flynn, which is a big deal because he was our national security advisor for a few days in January, if you can even remember that far back, given everything that's happened lately. Yeah, I didn't like this this line of response from Spicy. And uh, if you want to pass it along, tell him Buck Buck usually likes likes the way you roll Spicy. But on this one, obviously, you're not going to do this, Caitlin. But I'm just saying, I thought that that the the oh Obama gave them clearance. Why didn't the Obama administration pull his clearance? Because the Obama administration wasn't trying to make him national security advisor. I, I don't really. There are a lot of people with clearances. Uh, this, this is this seems to me to be a little bit of a misdirection when they don't need to misdirect. They could just say, "Yeah, we fired the guy. Obviously, he wasn't he wasn't shooting straight with us on some stuff." Exactly, and it's funny for me because the Trump administration doesn't want to rely on the Obama administration for anything, and rightfully so in a lot of cases. You know, on health care, Supreme Court nominees trade, diplomacy, all that jazz. But then when it comes to the Michael Flynn situation, they're happy to go back and say, well, we didn't grant him his security clearance. The Obama administration did. Well, that's not an excuse for a lot of other things, so I don't see why it's an excuse for this thing. And the uh, the aftermath, well, let's talk about, about health care for a second, if I can. Um, people are now saying what in terms of, uh, like, the this budget, it went through, and this is the administration is happy. What are the next steps? Well, now it's gone through the House after it narrowly passed last Thursday. There was a big celebration, the White House afterwards, as you'll recall. And now it's got to go through the Senate. However, people are predicting that this bill is going to look a lot different once they're done with it. And they also are predicting it's going to take a lot longer than the White House is saying. Now, this is probably going to become an issue if they keep delaying it and keep delaying it because the White House wants to get this passed. They want to have a legislative accomplishment. But today, this morning on Morning Joe, Senator Chris Coons said that he doesn't think there will be a final product of this health care bill until after the 2018 elections, which is a very long time away. Yeah, that seems like a bit a bit too long for, for my taste. But here we go. A few other pieces I see up here on DailyCaller.com. I got Bill Clinton writing a book with James Patterson. It's going to be like a is, is he the spy guy, spy thriller writer, right? Yes, they're writing a thriller together, which is pretty funny to me. They're teaming up. They're going to write one. It's going to be published next summer. There's not many details about what the plot's going to be, anything like that. All we know is that the title is The President is Missing. So it'll be pretty interesting to see what happens there. Yeah, if Bill Clinton is a co-author on this one, they should probably have an 18-plus warning on the cover or something. You know, this is not this is not <laughs> going to be – I have a feeling it will not be a bedtime story that uh, you could read to your kids. <laughs> Um, by the way, <laughs> Tiffany Trump attending Georgetown Law School. Any Anything on this other than just people reporting on the first family? Right. She's the newest Trump to move to Washington. I think the whole family is going to be here by the end of the year. Melania Trump and Barron are next. But yes, it was reported today by the Daily Mail that Tiffany Trump has decided where she's going to law school. As you'll remember, she graduated from the University of Pennsylvania last May, and now she'll be moving to D.C. along with everyone else. What's the mood these days among the uh, among the White House uh, press corps? You guys getting along with the administration? Is, is it now a, a finely tuned machine down there? How how are things going? I definitely would not say it's a finely tuned machine. I think things are still as crazy as they ever were. Maybe the White House has gotten a little bit better at communicating with the press, 
system, but that doesn't mean that they're always getting the answers they want. There's always going to be a little bit of a back and forth. And I don't think that's changed. I think that was evident today at the briefing when reporters had multiple questions about Michael Flynn and Sean Spicer kept going back to the Obama administration defense. So I think that they're not always getting the answers they want. Are you guys, uh, do you, you have much contact with members of the Trump team other than Spicer? Yes. They probably call reporters more than reporters call other reporters. They're constantly leaking and telling each other things. <laughs> really? I was chatting with someone today who said someone in the Trump administration called them to ask who their source on the story was because they couldn't figure it out amongst themselves. And Wait, so, so you know a reporter that got a call from someone in the Trump White House asking who the source for the reporter was? Uh-oh. Exactly. Yes, that's where we are. That's the state of D.C. right now. Oh, my. Okay. That's that's interesting to know. Perhaps uh, perhaps a little bit unsettling. By the way, what, what do you think about Trump implying in a tweet that, that Yates was the leaker? I see this is also up on DailyCaller.com. I, I, I got to say, I think it's a little... I don't think the president should be implying criminal guilt for somebody without any judicial proceeding to back it up. Exactly. That's a really serious claim to make. I don't think we're focusing enough on that because there is so much going on right now. But he is is accusing a former DOJ official of a felony by leaking classified information to the Washington Post. Now, today at her hearing, they, Sally Yates was asked if she's ever been the source for anything like that or for the Washington Post specifically, and she said no under oath. So it'll be interesting to see how that happens. Trump also said that the real story from today was that there's no collusion between the Trump campaign and that the media didn't focus on that, which is completely opposite of what James Clapper said during his testimony today. Well, Cl- Clapper said, said Clapper said no, that he didn't know about any But Yates said, I can't answer that because it's classified. And I'm just trying to construe in my head why the answer to that question in and of itself would be classified. Maybe the sources for the answer would be classified. But just the answer to me, I'm not sure I buy that. I know everyone's like, oh, she says it's classified. Um, I actually know something about what's classified and what's not. And I'm not sure that she can hide behind that when the answer is a straight. Clapper said no. So is is he exposing something that's no, he's just answering a straightforward question. Right. She did say that. She said that was, you know, her restriction because that's what James Comey, James Comey said when he testified earlier and that she was following the DOJ guidelines on that. And that's why she didn't want to say yes or no. But she did clarify, of course, a lot of people miss this. She did clarify later on that her answer should not be a presumption that there is evidence. It should not be read as anything like that. Yeah, so she's pulling the not, and she can neither confirm nor deny. Nor uh, deny. I would, I think that I, I would want to ask her if I were a senator. At what point will the FBI? At what point will they confirm or deny whether there's any evidence of collusion? Because the American people have a right to know. And if this investigation is going to extend for two or three years, and at the end of it we're told, ah, actually we never had any evidence of collusion, uh, that to me would be a real miscarriage of justice. I know I'm 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 punditing here and not really throwing you a question, Caitlin, but I'm just I'm just furious about this. No, I think you make a great point. We'll probably find out somewhere closer to 2020. Who knows? But it is interesting. We would like to know, the American people would like to know to put it to rest. But I do think at the end of the day, the people who supported Hillary Clinton in the election will always think that there is collusion between Trump and Russia. And the people who supported Donald Trump in the election 
will always think that that's a fake media story. I don't think even if there were solid evidence laid out tomorrow, either way, that those people would be convinced of others. I think that's absolutely true. I believe what they think. If, if, if Yates had come out today and said, for example, no, there's no evidence of any kind, you would see all the media, the, the immediate media outlet story would be, well, investigation continues because we know it's there, right? Like it would, it, exactly. it's never over. Exactly. It's never over. It's a good way to sum it all up. Caitlin Collins, the Daily Caller's White House reporter. Caitlin, great to have you stop by the Freedom Hut. Thank you so much. Thanks, Buck. Team, we are going to hit a break, and we'll be right back. Stay with me. Just one more thing from today's uh, exchange between, well, the the hearings with uh, Sal, former uh, acting Attorney General Sally Yates and uh, Ted Cruz, Senator Cruz, they there was a little bit of a back and forth here on the travel ban. Remember, Yates was the one who did a little grandstanding thing about I will not enforce Trump's travel travel uh, ban. It's really a temporary restriction on travel for people from six countries based upon the assessment made by the executive branch that those individuals have a disproportionate possibility of being somehow involved in extremism, which would be a threat to the homeland, i.e., Trump is like, yo, let's slow down with some of these places because there could be some dangerous terrorist people coming in. So let's just chillax for a bit. But no, unacceptable. Unacceptable, we were told by Sally Yates. And so Ted Cruz and her had a little exchange. Ted Cruz, haven't heard much from Ted recently. Well, you heard from, or heard from him today. I looked at this. I made a determination that I believed that it was unlawful. I also thought that it was inconsistent with the principles of the Department of Justice. And I said no. And that's what I promised you I would do. And that's what I did. So what happened here was Cruz uh, read from the following statutory authorization for the president. Whenever the president finds that the entry of any alien or of any class of aliens into the United States would be detrimental to the interests of the United States... He may, by proclamation and for such period as he shall deem necessary, suspend the entry of all aliens or any class of aliens as immigrants or non-immigrants or impose on the entry of aliens any restrictions he may deem appropriate, i.e., if the president says, I guess stop saying i.e., sorry. In other words, if the president says, uh, I think that people from uh, from the, the, the lost island of Atlantis are a danger to this country— we, he can suspend entry because they're non-citizens. They don't have a right to be here. He can suspend entry to, for, uh, well, as long as he wants, really. And Cruz asked, would you agree that this is broad statutory authorization? Yates responded, I would, and I am familiar with that. And I'm also familiar with an additional provision of the INA that says no person shall receive preference or be discriminated against in issuance of a visa because of race, nationality, or place of birth. Uh, that, I believe, was prom- promulgated after the statute you just quoted. Um, okay, well, that's nonsense. Let's just step back for it. If she's going to contend that that on its own means that there can be no preference in issuing visas, uh, really? Is it easier to get a visa from uh, from the United Kingdom or from, from Iran? I mean, this is such a stupid response from this woman who's supposed to be a very talented and accomplished lawyer uh, there can be uh, no discrimination based on race, nationality, or place of birth. Well, of course we make distinctions about visas 
We have a visa waiver program, for example. That would seem to be a pretty big distinction. Some countries, Miss Yates, are part of the visa waiver program. Some are not. It is based on the country they are from. I so really, this is this is this is the best the Obama administration could do. This woman was second in command at the Department of Justice. Wow. Um, and then she went on to say, so, so anyway, so reading that off as though that settles it. Well, there can be no uh, no preference. Um, in issuance of a visa because of race, nationality, or place of birth, uh, well, that's not that that's in violation of any number of current statutes and practices for uh, uh, for immigrants and uh, well for visas into the country. So now that we've dispensed with that nonsense, that was fun. Buck slap. Um, uh, let's go on to the next one here, where she said uh, it was a constitution, but my concern was not an INA concern here because she read. She read from an INA, or she, you know, read from an INA statute, Immigration National Naturalization Act. I assume the INA uh, is what that's what that is. It was rather a constitutional concern whether or not the executive order here violated the Constitution, specifically with the Establishment Clause and equal protection and due process. Not this woman, who again, senior lawyer in the Department of Justice, seems to think that non-citizens have. Uh, have due process rights to come into the United States. Uh, That's quite a leap. Um, And we've talked before on this show about how that just falls down, I think, think with even uh, preliminary scrutiny. It's just nonsensical. As was her contention that where you're from, uh, what country you're from, has no bearing on whether you get a visa or not. Really? I mean, does, does, does anybody really believe that uh, North Korea has a has a harder or easier time getting a visa. A North Korean has a harder or easier time getting a visa in this country than, say, somebody from, you know, England. So clearly what she just said was nonsense. Okay, I, I know I've already made that point, but just she's she's in a hearing before the Senate and she's saying something uh, that is dumb. Um, and then to say that the Establishment Clause is violated, how is the Establishment Clause violated? If it's because these are predominantly Muslim countries uh, that she not entirely Muslim countries, by the way, but predominantly Muslim countries that she's referring to. Uh, well, there's a small percentage overall of Muslim countries around the world and a small percentage overall of the Muslim population. So someone would need to explain to me how, it, again, this brings us back to how it could be a Muslim ban if it doesn't, in fact, ban Muslims. Ban some Muslims? Okay, well, that's or ban some nationalities, actually. It doesn't ban Muslims. Um but this was, I thought, a, a, a worthwhile moment to see that uh, this is what the left really believes here. Um, they are very dedicated to this idea um, that no matter what the statute says now that Trump— and this comes up in, in the context of what I was going to talk about next, which is that now you've got uh, judges looking at Trump's executive order in, in the appeals court. Uh, This from CNN Today. The Trump administration defended its travel ban in a federal court on Monday against accusations that it discriminates against Muslims. He, President Trump, made it clear he was not talking about Muslims all over the world. That's why it's not a Muslim ban. Jeffrey Wall, the acting solicitor general, told a dozen federal judges in the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals in Richmond, Virginia. The hearing comes about two months after a federal judge in Maryland imposed a nationwide halt to the core portion of the president's revised executive order that sought to bar uh, foreign nationals 
from six majority Muslim countries from entering the U.S. for 90 days. Um, and so it goes, 10 of the 15 active judges in the court are either Clinton or Obama appointees. That's not a good sign. And CNN has learned that at least one of the more reliably conservative votes is off the table, which means the overall composition of the left-leaning court could determine the outcome. Uh, so, yeah, th- there's nothing. By the way, what does it mean when a an executive branch can't get an order through not based on what the order is, but based on the animosity that judges have for the person signing the order, in this case, the president of the United States. Where does that stop and start? Because as we understand, even the second iteration of the travel ban, which is what is now being uh, looked at in the appeals court, um, the second iteration is very clear in that it does not, uh, it is not a Muslim, uh, a Muslim ban. And yet, because Trump has said things in the past, including on the campaign, that some of these judges don't like, they're just going to say that it's an implied or or it has to be a Muslim ban because Trump signed it. Uh, This is troubling stuff. Um, This is a very, well, you know how I feel about this. I've talked about it before. They're they're just, they hate Trump and judges are the uh, last refuge of the left in their efforts to stop the Trump administration from getting policy through, right? Judges are the final line of leftist defense. Because remember, they don't need all the judges. They just need a judge, a federal judge to slow things down and mess things up. And uh, by the time it gets to the Supreme Court, you know, we'll be thinking about the midterms. Uh, 844-900-2825. I do want to talk to you a bit about health care and then Afghanistan. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are cold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. So this is a rescue mission to make sure that we can achieve the goals we all want, which is getting the cost of coverage down and making sure that everyone has access to affordable health care, especially in including people with pre-existing conditions. That is what our bill does. Healthcare. Okay. So last week, the House passed the healthcare bill. We talked about it here. You know all about that. All right. It has to go through the Senate or the Senate might do its own bill. This is still just in the process of happening. Nothing really has happened yet. Um, you have uh, Democrats running around saying that this is going to kill people. This is, a, this is a new time in politics where people are just blatantly lying and essentially producing policies that are going to kill people. To Paul Ryan has absolutely no morals when it comes to uh, what he hopes to bring in terms of health insurance. He's more focused uh, on making sure the top 1% gets their tax cut than to make sure that Americans have lower premiums and more coverage. Um, you know, we've heard in politics all the time that you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. In this instance, we're essentially going to be killing Peter to make sure that Paul gets his tax cut. Yeah, so Republicans are killing people, you see. That's that's what the Democrat line of attack here. He's not the only one. You had Elizabeth Warren tweeting out some hysterical nonsense about how this was a life and death issue for, uh, for you know, in, in this, of course, all health care is life and death, right? But that this is going to kill People will die because of this. Um, yeah, that's right. People are going to die because of the Republican bill. This is what we are being 
told about all this, and I'm here to tell you that both sides aren't being straight with you on health care, Republicans and Democrats. Uh, Democrats are obviously full of hyperbole, and they're lying, and they're acting like little spoiled brats uh, who have had their favorite toy taken away. Oh, Obamacare is no longer what it was, although it's not repealed, So, uh, but Obamacare is not what it was. But Paul Ryan, who I think is well-intentioned, is uh, in reality playing the Democrats' game here, which is that they're trying to figure—they're they're trying to offer— a better version of what the Democrats offered with Obamacare instead of a fundamentally different approach to health care, uh, one that is market-based. What's happened here is that the Republicans have uh, Republicans have conceded that health care is a right, and Republicans are now in the business of giving everybody uh, health insurance, and they figure the coverage thing will have to just work itself out. This is a basic issue of supply and demand. They can give you as many pieces of paper as they want that say you're entitled to X or you're entitled to Y. But if there's no one to provide X or Y for you, whether it's uh, you know a tonsillectomy or a heart surgery, you're out of luck. And this doesn't deal with uh, the mechanisms of the market. It, it may be does a better job of that than Obamacare, but this is not a free market health care plan. What we've seen happen, though, is this has all just turned into a series of battling personal anecdotes. Um, and whoever can tell them, this, of course, came up with uh, Jimmy Kimmel, who told a, a very compelling personal story on uh, national TV Um about what happened to his newborn child. Totally under, totally sympathize and, and understand uh, where he's coming from on that. But one individual story is not how you make policy. Uh, and this starts to sound a little bit cold, I think, to some people. But you'll notice the Democrats will uh, tell stories of people that lost coverage or have had a more difficult time as a result of, uh, well, They'll say that people have been saved because of Obamacare, and now they're going to run all these stories with people that have had a terrible time because of what the Republicans are trying to do. They haven't even done it yet. It's not even a law. Um, but you have here a woman named Eileen Benthal, who has a daughter who suffers from a congenital brain disease. And she says the Affordable Care Act, well, I will play the clip for you. The reality is for us, um, it's been being out in the midst of a natural disaster navigating through the insurance markets um, since the enactment of Obamacare. Um, health insurance premiums have skyrocketed and the networks are shrinking. And that's been really difficult. Even um, a couple of times we had to change insurance companies. We were dropped again. We had very limited networks that we could participate in. Um, it, it really made our life much more difficult. So it's made lives more difficult. It has cost people more money. There are whenever the government enters into a marketplace and is picking winners and losers, well then that's exactly what's happening. There are winners and there are losers. There are people that will gain more from the government action. There are people that will suffer more from the government action. The promise of Obamacare is the big lie of Obamacare, which is that they can cover more people with better health care at less cost. That's just not true. It's never it has never been true and it will not be true. And the only way that they are able to even pretend that this mirage will continue 
uh, would be with lots of infusions of taxpayer cash and then just pretend that, well, that's not no one's really paying for it if the taxpayers paying for it. That's and <laughs> that's a, a basic strategy of the Democrat Party. If it's taxpayer cash, well, then no big deal because no one really feels where that comes from. And if they do, they're rich people, right? The class warfare rhetoric uh, comes fast and furious on this stuff. So uh, the Republicans don't have a much better answer yet. We, we can believe that Trump. Uh, we can believe that Trump is right when he says that there'll be a great health care bill down the line, and that this is just a first iteration of it, but. Um, I don't see any reason to think that's the case because we've conceded some essential points here. And I'm still a little uh, agitated. There are other words I would use, but we're on radio here. I'm still agitated over the abandonment of repeal and replace and the adoption of modify and amend for Obamacare, which is what's happening here. This is a modification. This is not... A complete overturning. This is not a uh, a rejection of the underlying premise of Obamacare, and it continues the untruth, or the the dishonest approach of telling everyone that we can give them great health care that won't cost them very much. You see, for the market to really work in time, I think healthcare would be more efficient and more expensive. But we'd have to go through a period. We'd have to wean ourselves off of government mandates and uh, government regulations in health care and the structure of insurance that it stands right now, we would have to go through a period of pain. And no one ever wants to be the politician that says, okay, well, now it's now it's eat your peas time. Now it's time to do the painful, difficult stuff. This is also true of dealing with our debt, right? We, we see this on a whole bunch of issues. The Republicans aren't even pretending right now. They're just saying, yeah, sure, we're, we're going to give you this we're going to give you a better version of Obamacare. That's what this is, a better version of Obamacare. And it uh, leaves untouched some of the fundamental problems of Obamacare. Uh, they say that later on, maybe we'll be able to buy insurance over state lines. And they say that um, that's something that will happen uh, until a Republican or until the Republican Party or the people at least that are the leadership are willing to look, the American, look at the American people on TV. We know a lot of those famous Republicans love to do their TV spots on cable news. Now look at the American people and say, um, we're going to make it so that anyone can buy insurance. The plan you buy is the plan you buy. Uh, emergency or life-saving care will be covered in emergency rooms or hospitals, as it already is. So no one can be, no one can be left down the street and die because they need health care. But in, in an emergency situation or a life-saving situation— but if you choose not to get insurance, at some point you're going to go bankrupt. You know, if you or or at least you run the risk of going bankrupt. If you choose not to have insurance, you know it can be there can be a financial penalty unless there is a a penalty. We saw this when we talked when we talked about Wall Street, right? People said, "Oh, look at what happened with Wall Street. They got bailed out by the taxpayer. There's no moral there's no moral hazard, and and because they don't feel the pain for their sins, they get the upside and not the downside. They won't change their behavior. Understandable and, and true, by the way. But if you can get away with not having insurance, if it doesn't really matter, if you can always just buy it or the government will have to give you some form of insurance on the spot because we decide that's the way it's going to be, um, people are going to choose not to have it. And terrible things will happen to some people. Health things will happen to some people that don't that choose not to get insurance. 
And then we get to a place where we say, okay, we will treat you, but you know, you're going to have to declare bankruptcy, and this is going to be financially painful for you. Um, you know, we, we, you'll be treated, but you, otherwise, what we have is, well, some halfway form of single payer. We've we've got the government stepping in and involving itself in the market and all these different capacities. And ultimately, by the way, as it stands right now, you might be. Even if you have insurance, you might not be able to see the doctor that you need to to save your life. You you might not be able to get that. Um, you might not be able to get that uh, life saving care or that care that you really want in time. Even with insurance, scarcity is a reality of the market. You know the the best the best heart surgeons in the country are not going to be available to everybody just because the government says everybody has great health care. Uh, no one wants to talk about that. But th- then you get the other side of this where you have people that are now say- – they're openly pushing for single payer, which I can understand because if if both Republicans and Democrats are like, look, everybody gets insurance, everybody gets covered, nobody can pay that much more than anybody else, and you know, we're, we're going to be in the insuring everybody and giving everybody health care game, it starts to sound a lot like, well, why not just do single payer, right? You can understand why somebody would come to that conclusion. Here is a clip that went – uh, viral over the weekend of somebody at a town hall for Representative Tom Reed uh, making a speech about just that. Ta- what you wish for first of all single payer in the context of the va is already choosing a very small subset of the broader u.s population to whom health care is is owed it, it is not given as some form of charity it is owed as, as part of the bargain of going to serve your country in the armed forces va has problems as we know we've talked about this uh, on my show and and uh, obviously you've seen it all over the place with the uh, lists of those who are waiting and uh, the malfeasance that's gone on at the VA. I, some some people have a good experience at the VA. I've heard from them. Some people have a terrible experience at the VA. I've heard from those uh, veterans as well. Uh, but this all also fails to recognize that the, uh, the the biggest problem for our budget and the place where we're spending the most money and the place where there's the greatest expenditure beyond our means is in Medicare, which is single payer, right? M- Medicare is the government paying for health care for people who are 65 and older. And that's what is just exploding the uh, the yearly deficit. And that's what is making the debt now just continue to rocket into the stratosphere. 
do, does anyone think that that wouldn't be uh, how, how much can you compound that problem before you completely collapse the U.S. economy? Uh, single payer in countries that have it, you look at the United Kingdom and uh, they have enormous problems uh, just keeping it funded. And and also, I would want to know, OK, single payer for everybody. So does that mean that I get to playing out the situation in your head is often a very valuable experience. So if we go to single, let's just say that Bernie Sanders wins. Yeah, baby, I win. Let's say we go to we go to single payer. Sanders style. And we have the government paying for everything. So if I find out that I have a heart condition, do I get to pick the uh, most reputable and most sought after surgeon uh, in the, you know, on the East Coast here in New York City? And, and he gets to do my surgery and the government's going to pay for it. What is that surgeon going to make, by the way, under a single payer uh, regime? Side note. I mean, I, I know we don't like to we don't like to think of the profit motive in medicine. But there's a reason why you want to have your heart surgery or you want to have a major surgery in the U.S. and not some other country that makes it free. Right. They're, 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 you ever, why would the Saudi Saudi royal family, when they want to get a heart transplant or something, do, do they go to one of these European countries or do they come to America? Generally speaking. Yeah. Um, so it's just a question of where the scarcity falls and what we're willing to uh Give everybody versus what we know is is going to be in, in short supply. And all right. Well, I know we're, we're talking a lot about healthcare here. We'll do a little more on the flip side, and then we'll get into Afghanistan and some other stuff. Uh, so stay with me. I keep saying I'm going to spend more time on automation and what it's going to do in the realm of uh, jobs. Um, and I, I think this will be a continuing uh, you know, continuing storyline that, that we hit. I read a piece uh, over the weekend about Uber, which some of you may use. Some of you are like, I've heard of it, and some of you are like, what's that? Uber right now, I think, is the has the largest valuation of any private company, in, I think, in the world. I might be wrong with that, but it's like an $80 billion valuation, um, something like it. It's, it's astonishing how valuable the company is, at least theoretically, on paper. And it creates a, a GPS-based taxi ride, or not taxi, but GPS-based rideshare service that's like a taxi that comes right to you, but it's really just somebody in their car who's also linked up on Uber on their smartphone. And it's incredible, uh, incredible technology. And it, I, I use it all the time. I, I think it's great. I go into a city now. One of my least favorite things about visiting some of the many, many wonderful cities of this country would, or just areas of this country would be when I arrive at the airport, got to get the rental car. I, rental car companies for me are only slightly less heinous than airlines. Uh, I, I, I cannot stand dealing with rental car companies and, and all the it's just the stuff they do too. Oh, do you want the special insurance? So they can try to you know jack up your price with you know, oh, if you get in an accident, you give us 40 bucks, you know, you got no problem. But if you otherwise, anyway, I, I people say, oh, Buck, well, that's, it's free. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's scaremongering. I mean, what are the chances in the one day you're in the rental car, you're going to have a fender bender? Um, it's one, they make a ton of money off that, by the way. Anyway, I don't, I don't like rental car companies. If you work for one, God bless, it's honest work. But in general, the way that they operate, I, I am not a fan. Uh, and Uber uh, is, well, Uber is mostly a problem for taxis. In fact, when I was in Puerto Rico, I was unfortunately 
uh, up close and personal with the well, they have a lot of problems in Puerto Rico right now. Island's bankrupt, um, but it's a U.S. territory, by the way. Uh, but Uber and taxis are in a street battle, sometimes literally, because they want to regulate out. Um, they they want to uh, well, the, the taxi drivers essentially are saying, "You've got to give us a car. This is a cartel. This is a monopoly. You can't allow competition from Uber because they're going to crush us." And sometimes that then turns violent because there are some uh, taxi drivers who just don't want to. Whenever they see Uber pulling up, anyway, you you can imagine they see Uber pulling up and they feel like their their livelihood is threatened. I I understand why they react in the way they do, but the real response should be, well, look, people should just start driving Ubers instead of uh, thinking that the government's going to protect their monopoly on on a service that they shouldn't have a monopoly on. Um, But what happens in the future when you get to self-driving cars, which is now a few years away. This isn't like flying cars, which I think are much, much further away than people even are saying today. Uh, but self-driving cars are are getting closer and closer, you know, probably three or four years out from a real rollout of self-driving cars. What's going to happen to all the people that make a living in the transportation business, uh, including, by the way, long-haul trucking may be affected by this, but taxis, uh, what happens when you have a fleet of self-driving cars? What do all those workers do across the country? And this piece was saying, well, Uber is going to have to go from being a software company to teaming up with a car maker like GM or a service or a major car maker like that to have a fleet of self-driving cars. But I still am left with the question, what happens to the people that are making a living driving cars? He spreads freedom because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back. Welcome back, team. Two very different news stories about Afghanistan right now that I wanted to spend some time talking to you about. As you know, we've been at war in Afghanistan for 16-plus years. Uh, This is the longest war in U.S. history. And while we only have about uh, 9,000 or so U.S. troops officially deployed there, uh, we have had uh, well over 100,000 in recent years. So there have been major efforts uh, put in place by our military to, well, defeat the Taliban, stand up a sustainable and self-defense-capable Afghan government. And we have not yet reached that stage. In fact, let me give you the two different stories, and then we can talk a bit more about Uh, which one I think is more indicative of where the longest-running conflict in U.S. history is going. First, you have special operations success. Now, we know about the Moab strike. We know that uh, that was a a signal not just to the Taliban and the Islamic State, that specific strike targeted the Islamic State, but it was a symbol to our enemies around the world that the Trump administration will take a different approach in the Obama administration, and the, the approach will be whatever we have to do to defeat our enemies, we will do. We're not going to worry about what the international press may say about any specific issue. Uh, so we've seen some action taken by the Obama, I mean, by the Trump administration that the Obama administration uh, was not willing to do. Um, and we now see the continued special operations uh, success on the battlefield. This 
uh, coming from the Wall Street Journal earlier today, or this is from the BBC, actually. The head of so-called Islamic State in Afghanistan, Abdul Hasib, has been killed in a military raid, U.S. and Afghan officials have said. He died 10 days ago in a joint special forces operation in eastern Nangar province, uh, the U.S. military said. Hasib is believed to have been behind March's attack on a military hospital in Kabul, killing at least 50 people. That attack, uh, I should note, was so incredibly horrific. I mean, it was butchery. They had uh, attackers who were reportedly dressed as doctors or as employees of the hospital walking around to people in hospital beds, uh, executing them with uh, guns as well as stabbing some to death. So the atrocities, the up-close and personal atrocities that members of the Islamic State in Afghanistan and, for that matter, the Taliban are willing to commit, they really know no boundaries. Um, So that attack, I, I didn't think, got the press and the attention that it should have in this country because we should be reminded of who we are fighting against. We should be reminded of how depraved this enemy is. Um, and whenever I hear people saying, well, why don't we just negotiate a settlement with the Taliban? Because the Taliban act like savages, because the Taliban are our enemy, because the Taliban are an Islamist jihadist cult of psychopaths who will subjugate women, who will execute non-believers, and who will use vicious force and destroy the life of the mind of the Afghan people. No music, no reading, no nothing outside of a very limited, narrow Taliban Islamic education and no expression, no freedom. The Taliban is an Islamic totalitarian theocracy. There's no freedom. So, and we can say, well, Buck, it doesn't really... Uh, doesn't really affect us if the Taliban is in power in some parts of the country, and we'll get into this more in a second. Well, the truth is we didn't think it affected us until 9-11. That was the old perspective. The new perspective is you allow evil jihadists anywhere around the world to seize control of a state and to allow terrorist jihadist actors to have a symbiotic relationship with them in that state, and you take risks, and you will be subject to the uh, possible horrific consequences of those risks with mass casualty terror attacks. So you have this reported in the BBC, this special operations uh, success, taking out the head of ISIS Afghanistan. As I've told you, uh, this is the Khorasan province of the Islamic State. So the Islamic State uh, uses the old Ottoman wilayat or uh, province designation because the last caliphate before the Islamic State was the Ottoman Empire, and they refer to this area as Khorasan, which also ties into uh, a well-known in jihadist circles, at least, hadith about black banners coming from Khorasan and the end of days. So you read this special operations uh, success story in the BBC, and you might think to yourself, okay, well, this is progress. This is the counterterrorism operation strategy that has been talked about and has been uh, deployed for many years in Afghanistan. But we're, we're taking out leadership. That's useful. Problem is we've been doing this sort of thing for a long time, uh, that the leadership losses that the Taliban and the Islamic State take uh, are certainly not sufficient to defeat these organizations and in many cases aren't even sufficient to slow them down substantially. 
So you have this piece about a special operations raid. We have U.S. troops in harm's way, very likely based on the testimony of the U.S. general, uh, commanding general for U.S. forces in Afghanistan. And it's very likely that General, uh, according to what General Nicholson has been saying, that we will have more U.S. troops going to Afghanistan uh, in the months ahead, trying to shore up the government there. And let's get into the why. This is a piece in the Wall Street Journal. Taliban broadened their reach by, well, this is not what the journal says, but what I'm saying. The Taliban broadened their reach in villages across Afghanistan. That's the, the title here. But they're acting as the government. This is my analysis of this. They're acting as the government in some places. The Taliban in Afghanistan right now, my friends, we have had our troops fighting in Afghanistan now for over 16 years. And about a third of the country, depending on the estimates you read, about a third of the country is under Taliban control. The Taliban, or at least contested control, the Taliban is providing electricity. It is administering schools. This is all from this Wall Street Journal report. Um, they here's, here's one paragraph I wanted to read to you. The insurgents, once focused on waging guerrilla war from strongholds in opium-rich provinces like Helmand, are now emerging in a swath of districts to fill a governance vacuum left as foreign troops depart. As a result, millions of Afghans are once again having to adapt to life under Taliban rule. The Taliban wielded significant control over 8.4 million Afghans, almost a third of the population, at the end of 2016, up from 5 million a year earlier, according to a United Nations report, a confidential United Nations report reviewed by the Wall Street Journal. The report showed that the territory over which the insurgents have significant influence or control increased from 30% to 40% of the country over the same period. Uh, and then it goes into some details about what this means. There are some places, for example, uh, where the Taliban is such a, 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 a presence and has so much control that families are hedging their bets. There are brothers who are joining the Taliban and there are brothers who are joining the local police. And it's not about loyalty and it's not about a difference in ideology necessarily within the family. It's they just don't know which side is going to win. So they want to have people playing both sides of this. You still have narcotics as a very important source of income for the Taliban, opium sales, um, which for the insurgents alone were about $400 million, according to the uh, estimate here, the U.N. estimate that the Wall Street Journal has access to. But they also have other means, and this is classic insurgency operation. They have other means of raising funds. We see this in, we saw this in, in, in Iraq, and this is standard operating practice for insurgents. Extortion, oftentimes is kidnapping, although kidnapping can sometimes turn the local population against you much more quickly. But extortion, especially extortion against telecommunications companies, uh, as well as all businesses that are operating in a Taliban-controlled or contested area. But with telecom companies, it's very straightforward. Uh, and you either pay the Taliban or your cell tower gets bombed and is down. And you, so you can pay, and the, the government can tell you don't pay, don't pay, but if you don't, your cell tower gets bombed, and now you can't get any revenue for an area, and you have to rebuild the cell tower. And oh, by the way, you also may have your employees at risk in that whole process. Um, and so the Taliban makes money through extortion operations. Uh, they also, according to this journal piece, say that 
the, the Taliban will determine when there has to be a blackout for cell towers in a certain area because they don't want the cell tower to be an operational risk for the Taliban. So the Taliban will say, hey, turn off all those cell towers. We don't want anyone able to try and track us, quote, when signals could give away their positions during operations, end quote. That's what they're talking about here. So that shows a tremendous amount of, of influence and control over parts of Afghanistan. And uh, you have John Nicholson, the general, General John Nicholson, saying that equilibrium favors the government. Uh, look, I, I understand the, uh, the attitude here of senior military, which is that, of course, we're, we're making progress, we're making progress. I can tell you senior military, U.S. military, has been saying we're making progress in Afghanistan for, well, certainly for the, the better part of, the, of uh, the last eight years. And I think you could say all the way back to 2001. And when you look at the metrics, the metrics don't show the kind of progress that we would want to see. But nobody wants to be the one who, one, contests that uh, general with much more access and whose troops are in harm's way day in and day out and who clearly has a better view of what's on the ground and around the country. It's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to disagree with generals in this case. And I, I don't want to disagree with a general. He certainly has more access, information, experience and all. But he's also in the midst of it. And it would be problematic for relations with the Afghan government for a general to say, yeah, you know what, we just can't get this done at the current rate. We're losing ground and equilibrium favors the Taliban. I can't even say it's really equilibrium. I think that's being too generous to the situation on the ground. The reality here, as I see it, is that the Taliban is taking back control of this country slowly but surely. And how are we going to turn this around? Are we going to send not just a few thousand U.S. troops, but tens of thousands of U.S. troops. Well, why will that be different from the last time around? Because President Obama's strategy was flawed? Okay, but that alone I don't think is enough to convince many of us who have been following Afghanistan and, and spent time in Afghanistan and know Afghanistan uh, at one degree or another. Uh, that's not enough to convince us that the new strategy will work. So I, I see this, and you know, yes, special operations success, yes, the Moab strike, these are positive developments, but countrywide with the Taliban, they are winning this fight right now. And we need to come to grips with that as a country because the troops that are over there are our soldiers representing U.S. interests as part of a broader coalition of nations. And if we don't have our politicians that we elect, including the president of the United States, establishing a real strategy to win this fight— and clear on what the parameters of that fight are, then we should tell ours to come home back to their families. That's that's where we should be on this. And Afghanistan should be getting a lot more attention than some of the other nonsense I'm seeing right now in the media, including in conservative media. And I'll put it out there, including on the right. A lot of garbage being talked about these days. And we've got people that are fighting and dying. We lost a couple recently as well. I should have mentioned that earlier on. I just um, going through my notes here. We're still taking casualties there. What does the fight in Afghanistan look like when we're done? How do we get there? It's a conversation this country needs to be having much more of right now. All right, team, I'm going to hit a break. Uh, I'll be back with you right after. Stay with me. I didn't want to leave a bit of happy news from the Trump administration uh, off uh, of uh, what, we're, what we've got going on today. So let me tell you a bit about the situation with uh, judges. Uh, let's talk about the situation with judges for a minute, shall we? 
this is from Fox News Today. President Trump began his bid Monday to reshape the makeup of the lower federal courts. With the White House announcing 10 judicial nominees, it described as Trump's third wave of federal judicial appointments. Coming out of its first 100 days, the administration aims to build on the successful confirmation of Justice Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court. White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer said the nominees were all chosen for their deep knowledge of the law and their commitment to upholding constitutional principles. Two of the nominees originally were on the list of 21 candidates the Trump administration or Trump transition team considered for the Supreme Court vacancy left by Antonin Scalia's death and ultimately filled by Gorsuch. Okay, and then there's some details in the judges here. Of course, Democrats are, as we would expect them to, saying that uh, Trump is is appointing uh, a bunch of, of monsters to the uh, federal bench, of, of course. Uh, but I, I think uh, it's worth taking a moment to just say whenever this is the step beyond at least it's not Hillary, you could say this is tied into at least it's not Hillary. But whenever I start to get frustrated with the administration a little bit, and my frustration so far is is pretty limited, pretty minor. But whenever I start to feel like the administration could have done a better job on something and they're not really following through as I thought they would, yes, I think, at least we don't have Hillary Clinton. I just want to give speeches and get paid a lot of money. I, that sounds just like her. I know. It sounds exactly like Hillary Clinton. Some of you are like, was that Hillary Clinton just there coming through my radio? And the answer is oh, kind of. Um, but it, it's not Hillary, which is nice. And uh, we can all be excited about that. Also, though, uh, the appointment of Gorsuch to the Supreme Court is a real win. And the appointments that Trump is now making to the lower courts really matters. I, I've said this before, and it uh, bears repeating. Obama's judicial legacy is as much about the lower court nominees as it is his appointments to the Supreme Court. And you could argue they were as important, in a sense. A third of sitting federal judges right now were appointed by Obama. Think about that for a moment here. Um, Barack Obama made over 300 Appointments to the federal judiciary. Uh, Trump is looking at 130 judicial judicial vacancies in lower courts right now. So this is a, another data point in the, hey, Trump is, is following through. You'll notice this in the areas where it's just up to Trump's discretion and uh, nobody can just no one can tell him no in the sense they can't override his decision making authority. Uh, with the exception of a couple of appointments to uh, his top advisors, I think Trump has done a, a good job. Certainly with the judicial nominations, it has been strong. Um, and like I've been saying, the real fight over the next Supreme Court nomination, that's where you will see that'll be very interesting uh, politically. And interesting to see how the administration goes on that one, because I am not... Uh, I am not convinced that the Democrats won't, that they will be in desperation time on that one. And I, I don't know what that will mean, but they'll come up with something somehow to try and stop Trump uh, from, it'll be the most vicious media campaign you've ever seen if Trump appoints a conservative to the Supreme Court, or tries to appoint a conservative to the Supreme Court for the next round. Anyway, so Trump got up, he's going to get a bunch of conservatives on the bench Let's give him some credit for that one. I, I call it out when I don't like things in the healthcare and other places. 
And uh, but uh, we got to also make sure we take a moment to stop and say, all right, well, uh, Trump is doing some good stuff. And uh, certainly on judges, he's doing some very good stuff. Uh, my friends, please check out BuckSexton.com. Uh, you can listen to the show there. We also post articles throughout the day. We will be in the uh, weeks ahead starting to sell some very cool Team Buck gear there. Also on iTunes, Buck Sexton with America Now. Click subscribe. Please pass the buck. Tell a friend about the show. And until tomorrow, shields high.